Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, we've been in a series called 7 by 7. Um, 7 by 7 is a nickname for San Francisco. It's also seven churches of Revelation. And so, and every church is, every church is written to a church that's in a city. And Jesus has something really specific to say to every church. And what we've been doing is prophetically going, going through this more prophetically, meaning what I mean like that hopefully doesn't freak you out. What I mean by that is we've been looking at this, this letter who, that was actually written to seven real actual churches. And we've been looking at them going, how might God want to speak to our specific church, Reality San Francisco, and our point in history, and what, is, what, what does God want to teach us? And so we're almost done. We're in the church of Philadelphia tonight, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Next week, the church of Laodicea. And then after that, we're going to stay in Revelation for about three more weeks. But what we're going to do is we're going to do a, a, like, almost like a mini-series on heaven. So after Laodicea next week, the week after, I'm going to teach on Revelation 4 and 5. And then uh, Revelation 21 and 22. And I'm going to teach on Revelation 4 and 5, present heaven. What have, what's going on in heaven right now? And then Revelation 21, 22, future heaven. Two different kinds of heaven. Very important stuff. Um, and then after that, for two weeks, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Francis Chan, will be teaching alongside me. We're going to be team teaching on heaven, like implications of how to live into, like how do we live out the implications of heaven on earth today? And how do we look forward to heaven, that sort of thing. So we'll launch into like a three-week teaching series on on heaven um, after the seven churches. Cool? That's kind of where we're going for the next few weeks. Um, and then Advent will be right around the corner, so we're looking forward to that. Okay, so Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. Let me just read this to you and, um, and pray. Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures um, and, and how through them you have uh, made it to where you speak by your Spirit through them even today. Ancient texts that you that you divinely inspire to speak to our lives and shape the way we are as uh, your people today. And I ask that you would speak tonight, God. That's what we've been praying. That's what our prayer team has been praying. That's what we've been praying for every soul in this building tonight, that you, that we would hear the voice of God, that you speak today, that you would speak tonight, God. That you speak to our hearts corporately and our minds corporately, and you speak to us individually. I pray for those that maybe have never heard you, like, or heard a call from you, like that, that call to follow you, that call to, like, 
into ministry or into vocation or whatever, that we would hear the clear and still and small and pure and holy and good voice of God tonight together. And may we hear it through the scriptures, may we hear it through Christian fellowship, may we hear it through response and communion and songs. Just be with us tonight, God, we pray. Would you anoint me to proclaim the scriptures? Give me, give me unction and power in your, in, your, in, in your words tonight. We want your words, not, not my words. I want your words, God. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the, 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 the seven churches of Revelation are written to seven literal churches. And the church is a precious and beautiful thing. It's also a fragile thing. And not fragile like, like it can be easily broken because it's kind of hard to break a church down. But it's fragile in the sense that it can go astray really fast. What a church has to do and must be is, is faithful to Christ. Every church must be faithful to the voice of Jesus. And at its best, the church, the church. I, I love the church. Like I've, I've like given actually my life. Not, no, that's Jesus did. But I've like um, given my life kind of to the church in the sense that I, it's, my, it's my life, it's my vocation, it's my call, it's my, my job, it's everything to me. And, and, I, and I love Jesus' church. I love Jesus' bride, the church. Um, and, and the church at its best, and I've seen it. I've seen it in other places, and I've seen uh, pockets of it here in this city, and I've seen it pockets of it in our church. At, at best, the church is like an unstoppable force. It's a beautiful mess. The church is a beautiful mess of people all broken, myself included, all broken, being made new by Jesus and by his spirit, the church is like a little pocket of heaven, like a little inbreaking kingdom of God. The church lives out Jesus, the Lord's prayer where he says, your will be done um, on earth as it is in heaven. And that your, your, your kingdom come, your will be done, that little phrase in the Lord's prayer is, 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 is should be the embodiment of what, our, what the church is. Like this thing, this gathered community of people. Like we should be like your kingdom come through our lives as we gather and your will be done as we scatter all over this city on earth in San Francisco as it is in heaven. That should, that's, that's, the, that's what the church, at its best, that's what the church is. It's like a, an enclave, a pocket, uh, a little breaking in of heaven on earth. At its worst, though, the church is a manipulative, abhorrent institution deceiving people right into hell. So, I mean, it's like good or bad. It's like really bad, like you're le leading people into hell. Or it's like really good, like you're, you're a pocket of heaven. Um, and Jesus is serious about his church. In Revelation chapter 1, when, you, when we see Jesus, he's revealed with eyes of fire and feet like bronze and hair like wool. And, and it's just all it's symbolism. Revelation is chock full of symbolism. It's, it's apocalyptic symbolism uh, telling us who Jesus is. And it says that Jesus, in all of his beauty and authority and power and splendor, is in the midst of uh, golden lampstands which are, again, a symbol of the church. The church is to be the light. We're told uh, that they are the churches. The church is to be a light of the world. The church is to get, um, that's like all, also uh, an Old Testament, Zechariah um, sort of reference to uh, the, the, the oil from the lamps was, was lit by the Spirit of God, not by might nor by power, but my spirit. So the churches are to be spirit-led, spirit-filled by the Spirit of God, and also lights to the world. Jesus stands in the midst of the, of the churches and says, these are my churches and I will speak to them individually and I will encourage them and correct them. I will get them to where they actually have to be faithful to me. So Jesus takes his church very seriously. And, and no matter what culture the church lives in, 
um, and, no, and no matter what time in history, the, the culture has a way of pressing in and on and around the church to the point where the church can no longer or is no longer faithful to Jesus Christ. And that's a scary place to be. A scary place to be for a church. The church might find that she may be, like, she might still be uh, a great spiritual outpost to her city, like, I don't know, like a yoga studio might be or like Soul Cycle or whatever. Um, or she could be faithful as like a helping hand, like a soup kitchen might be or a food bank might be. But because of the constant pressure to conform, the church can find herself no longer faithful and obedient to her founder. And that should cause great fear in the church. That, sh- that, 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 allow- that causes the elders of this church and the ministers of this church and the leaders of this church, the staff of this church, and I would imagine the people of this church great fear. Like, I want to be a part of a church. We must all be a part of the church. Always keep it before us. Uh, we talked about last week with... Uh, the church in Sardis, that we can become a dead church. That's a thing that can happen. We have to remain faithful and obedient to Christ. And what I mean by faithful to Christ is that the church should look like Christ. The church should emulate Jesus. We as a community, as a people individually, and as a people corporately should look like Jesus. This last week I was reading a book um, by Dallas Willard um, called um, The Spirit of the Disciplines great book. If you've ever like wrestled with like how, how do you live a spiritually disciplined life, the spiritual disciplines, how are they even relevant for today? Read this book. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. Um, in it, Dallas Willard uh, says, um, he, he's, he's talking about certain conservative and fundamental circles of Christianity. And he says this, it is generally accepted that being a Christian had nothing essentially to do with actually following or being like Jesus. So he's reflecting on, on a, certain, a certain conservative or a certain fundamental church culture that he says it's, it was generally accepted in this church culture that being a Christian had nothing essentially to do with actually following or being like Jesus. It was readily admitted that most Christians, quote Christians, did not really follow Jesus and were not really like Jesus. The only absolute requirement for being a Christian was that one believed the proper things about Jesus. This is like what the, what, that should never happen. But this does happen. This, ha- this can easily happen in our heart. We can easily move this way to where we're like, well, I'm a Christian because I believe the right things about Christ. But d- does your life look like Jesus? I mean, does your church look like Jesus? Um, I told you last week um, that I, whenever I get into um, an Uber or a Lyft or whatever, and I start talking with the, dr- the, the driver, um, inevitably it'll come up, what do you do? And they'll ask me, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a local pastor. And every, almost everyone thinks I know the Pope. Like, oh my gosh, do you know the Pope? I'm like, I actually, no, I don't, I don't know the Pope. Um, but what's, what's really, what's awesome about almost every one of those conversations these days is that the person driving or, or, or even like, you know, traveling or whatever, they'll inevitably talk about how the Pope, like, they're not Christian. The, the person I'm talking to is not Christian. But they like, the, but the, it seems like the Pope lives like Jesus. And that's a weird concept, right? Like, oh gosh, the Pope like, lives like Jesus. Like, but he does. And that's what they tell me. Like, it just it seems like what he's doing is like, does he like, he speaks to the House of Congress and then chooses to eat, not eat with them, but eats with the poor. Like, that's something that I think that Jesus might do. And the parable is clear enough. 
Pope Francis, a couple weeks ago, speaks to one of the most powerful groups of people in the world and then has dinner with the most invisible people in the world. And you see that and you're like, well, that's kind of like Jesus. The church, I don't know, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Protestant, whatever, the church must emulate and look like Jesus. And must. We have to believe the right things. That's very important. We talked about that in the church in Ephesus. We have to believe the right things. We can't get doctrine wrong. But we have to live into the way of Jesus. Now, one easy way to get off the hook of this, though, all this like, wow, if the church has to be that accountable to Christ, that, or, or the church, I, I just don't want to be lumped into a big group of people that might be cheesy. I don't want to be lumped into a group, big group of people that like, I might have it right, but the person across the pew from me might not have it right. The easiest way to get off the hook is not, be, not belong to any church. And this is actually a very popular thing over the last maybe 20 years, and it's getting worse. Now, I know there, there might even be people here to, to, that think this way, like a, f- a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine, wrote a book, a best-selling book actually called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And I think this captures the sentiment, well, like, okay, I'm down with Jesus. I just don't want to be lumped into any church because that church could go astray or I don't want to just really be connected to all that many people that believe all these different things. I'd just rather just me and Jesus. Even a couple weeks ago, um, Justin Bieber was interviewed. Um, I never thought I would say this, but I'm actually going to quote him. Um, this is a low point in my life, but this is a really good point. Um, a couple weeks ago, he was interviewed in Complex Magazine where he was talking about the resurgence of his own faith in Christ. And this is what he said. He said, I actually want to, like, this next stage of my life, I want to act and be like Christ. Like, that's what he wants to do, he said. Okay, that's, 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 that's good. That's noble. I think that's what should be all of our hope. But in the same interview... He was kind of downplaying the church. At one point, he said that you don't have to go to a church to be a Christian. If you go to Taco Bell, that doesn't make you a taco. That He said that, not me. Like, he <laughs> literally said that. Quote, if you go to Taco Bell, that does not make you a taco. And interesting enough, interesting enough, the interviewer, it just the article ends right after that quote. The interviewer was like, I think we've had enough here. I think we're done. <laughs> and it just, the article ends right there. But he said that, like... I, and I think this is, this is kind of this, the sentiment is like, I want to be like Christ, but I'd rather do that alone. Or maybe with my own personal counsel because the church is kind of jacked. What is beautiful about Revelation is it won't let you get away with that. If you're, if you're new to coming to church um, or this church or any church and you're like, I'm kind of a vagabond, I kind of roam around and I kind of like do my thing and pop in, pop out, whatever. Like, the Re- Revelation just won't let us get away with it. Like, it can't be you and your personal relationship with Jesus. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, if you're familiar with it, he has a great little reflection on Revelation. It's not little. It's actually a pretty good-sized book. And um, he, he talks about this and when he talks about the church in Revelation. And it's kind of a long quote, and I'm going to read it to you because I think it's really good. Listen. He says, and especially this, like the second sentence, it gets, it gets good right away. He says, um, with, with, with like Jesus showing up in the midst of the lampstands and the church in Revelation chapter 2, it says, in the midst of the seven churches, John saw one like the Son of Man. Who was Jesus? The Christ. Listen to this. Christ is not seen apart from the gathered, listening, praying, believing, worshiping people to whom he is Lord and Savior. It is not possible to have Christ apart from the church. We try. We would very much like to have Christ apart from the contradictions and distractions of the other persons who believe in him or say that they do. 
We want a Christ who is pure goodness, beauty, and truth. We prefer to worship him under the caress of a stunning sunset or with inspiring tonalities of a soaring symphony or by means of a penetrating poetry. We would like to put as much distance as possible between our worship of Christ and the indifferent hymn singing and fussy moralism which somehow always gets into the church. But to all this aspiring asceticism, the gospel says no. Write to the seven churches. We would prefer, this is such a good line, we would prefer to go directly from the awesome vision of Christ in Revelation 1 to the glorious ecstasies of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 and then on to the grand victorious battles against dragon wickedness in Revelation 12 through 14. But we can't do it. The church has to be negotiated first. The only way from Christ to heaven and the battles against sin is through the church. See what he did there? That was very clever. He's like, oh yeah, you want to get to the glories of Revelation 4 and 5? Oh, you want to get to God's judgment? How he's going to unfurl his kingdom program? Oh, you want to get through all that in Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens, new earth? You can't do that without getting through the church first. You can't. The church, Christ's church, can be a messed up place. And I get that. And you might have been hurt by the church or a pastor or a leader. And I sincerely apologize People are jacked up, and people make up the church. But the church must be a place where we work out the implications of what it means to be faithful and obedient to Christ, and not simply our culture. And to live for Christ and not our comforts. And to love and worship Christ and not ourselves. And so at the the beginning of each of the letters to the churches, Jesus reminds them who he is and what they, the church is accountable to. And so at the beginning of every letter, he reveals himself differently. And, I, and I love, one of my favorite ones is the way he reveals himself to the church in Philadelphia. He said, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Holy and true were uh, the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm him. I make him known. I'm one with him. I am holy and true. And it says, who holds the keys of, or the key of David. The key of David um, is a kingly reference taken from the language of Isaiah 22 and speaks of authority. Uh, David was the king over Israel, and it was promised that through David's line that Messiah would come, the king, the king would come. And Jesus is of the, 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 this, this sort of uh, messianic kingly line of David. And Jesus says, I hold the keys of David. I hold, I hold, I hold the people of God. I hold the, the kingdom of God. I hold, the, I hold all of this. I have the authority of it. And I have the keys. And what he does with keys is he opens and closes doors. And so he says, I have the keys, the authority of, of all of God's kingdom. I have it. And I open doors. And the doors that I open, no one can shut. And the doors I shut and lock, no one can open. What Jesus is saying is that I have authority, and I have authority in the church. And I have authority to open up doors for the church. And I have authority to open up doors for my people. And I have authority to open up doors for God's, like, unfolding program that no one can shut, that no one can shut down. I do have that authority. And I can shut doors that no one can open. The way I've seen this authority of Christ being played out, even in this church, is when God first called my wife and I to plant a church in San Francisco. Uh, I, I'm from a town called Bakersfield um, in the Central Valley. I think I've shared that before. And we were moving from Bakersfield to 
um, the Central Coast, uh, Santa Barbara area, in a town called Carpinteria. And as we moved for church planting residency, um, we didn't know where we were going to go. We were going to plant a church. And um, the Lord kind of gave us three, I don't know, I, I, uh, it depends on, like, you might say word, like you got a word from God. These were just like impressions, things that we thought we were hearing God lead us towards as we were planting a church. And the first was this. We knew that we were going to plant in a city. And I had in my mind a certain city in mind. I'm like, I'm going to plant in a church somewhere like Bakersfield, a small town, maybe in California, that sort of thing. And the first thing that God was like leading us to, he said, I'm, I'm going to send you to a city that's bigger than you think. And that was like the first thing. I'm like, whoa. Like, I'm I like, I mean, okay, that's kind of scary and expensive, but okay, I'll do it. Um, and then the second thing was, I'm going to send you to a city, and this was harder to swallow. I'm going to send you to a city darker than you think. It's spiritually heavier and spiritually darker. And I'm like, I'm really encouraged at this point. This is great. This is going great. Um, and the third thing, and this is where the open door thing comes in. Um, we were sensing that God was saying, and I can say this is, this is true. I mean, this is what, what's happened. He says, I'm going to send you to reap where you have not sown. I'm going to send you to a, a city where you're going to step into people's prayers that they've been praying for generations. You're going to step into other people's work that they've been working for generations. And you're going to step into this, and you're going to step into it like it's going to be like all these people have worked the ground, worked the ground, worked the ground. And you're going to step into something, and you're going to reap where you have not sown. And others people have sown. This is John 4, 38, by the way. Um, Jesus sends out his disciples and says, I'm going to send you to reap where you have not sown. Others have, have done the hard work and have prepared the ground, and you're going to reap the benefits of their labor. This is a really weird thing to hear. Like, basically, God was like, I'm going to open up a door of opportunity for you that, um, that you're going to step into all these other people's kind of work. And I'm going to open up a door that no one can shut. And, um, and I'm going to shut doors that no one can open. I'm going to do something through what, like, and it has nothing to do with you. And it has nothing to do with reality. It has, it's just, I'm, I'm just going to do this. I have the authority to do this. Just don't, like, don't screw it up. Be faithful and obedient and humble. And I, I really think that this is what's happened to several churches in the city, um, especially since we've been here. We've seen this happen. Um, God's just opening up doors of opportunity that no one can show. Like, I, 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 I know that, that, I don't know why, but Jesus is holy and true, and I trust him, and he has the authority to open up doors, and we have the responsibility to walk through them. And this is exactly what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia. He says to the church in Philadelphia, I have open doors of opportunity that I want you to walk through. I've set before you open doors. Now, I should note here that I'm not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You're like, you're like whoa, Jesus was in America? No, that's like a whole different thing. That's Mormonism. That's not this. Um, this is a city in Asia Minor in the first century. Here's a map. Um, at the very, if you see the second to the last city is Philadelphia. So this is Patmos is where John, the, the revelator, was getting this revelation. And he sent the message first to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. Right? That's the progression of the letters. And then Philadelphia. We're there. And then it would let, lastly go to Laodicea, which is next week. Uh, Philadelphia is a, a town in Asia Minor. One historian says that Philadelphia was a missionary city from the beginning. And it's not necessarily talking about... Um, Christian missionary, but in the sense that this city and Philadelphia was a, tr a strategic city that would function as a city that spread the Greek language, that spread uh, Greek way of life, that spread Greek civilization throughout the regions of Asia Minor and to the known world. So Philadelphia was a strategic missionary city in that its purpose was to Hellenize the world 
or to turn the world Greek. That was the purpose of Philadelphia. So Jesus says to this church placed in a very strategic city, he says this, verse 8, I know your deeds, church in Philadelphia. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, let's just, let's talk about this open door thing real quick, because what does that even mean? Um, I, I, I think that um, the church can be, we can be guilty as Christians of using churchy language that we don't even know where it's from. Like, we pray for people that God would put a, like, a hedge of protection around them. You're like, what is that? Like, that's weird, a hedge of protection. Um, or, and we'd say, that, or like, God, open up a door that no one can shut, right? That comes from this right here, by the way. So what does that even mean? Um, the language of open door is typically the language of gospel opportunity. Gospel opportunity. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul told the Corinthians that he was going to be staying in Ephesus because a wide door for effective work has opened to me. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, when Paul came to Torah to preach the gospel, it says, a door was open for me in the Lord. In Colossians 4.3, Paul asked the Colossians to pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. This is the language of gospel opportunity, typically in the New Testament. An open door was often this like God, God's will opening up before um, someone or, or the church, enabling that person or that church for opportunity. And so in Revelation 3.8, it says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. But it also goes on and says, I know that you have little strength. I, I'm giving you this opportunity. Church, I want you to like step into the things that I have for you in the church. But I know, I know that you have little strength yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, it should be said, before we move on, that nothing bad is said about the church in Philadelphia. There is no, but I have this against you, sort of language. But look at the wording in verse 8. Look at this wording. It says, a door of opportunity, but you have little strength, you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So, there's nothing bad said about this church, but here's the danger, and this is where I think we can apply it as a church. The danger was that, that the danger would, is that they would settle for mediocrity. It wasn't that they would deny Jesus' word. That wasn't the danger. They've kept Jesus' word. They, they, it's not the danger that they would deny Jesus' name. They kept Jesus' name, even under fierce persecution. The, the, the danger for the church in Philadelphia is that they would settle into mediocrity. They would settle into this place where, like, like okay, I've, I've suffered enough. I've gone through enough in my, in, in my life. I've gone through enough, like, enough pressure of following Jesus. I've gone through enough. Let's just, like, go into, like, battery save mode for a minute. Like, let's just go inward. Let's go insular. Let's, and, and, and they can, they can just, like, grow, like, they can settle for mediocrity. And I believe the same is true for us. I, 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 I don't think the danger is that we will deny the faith necessarily. I don't think reality at this church, the danger is that we'll deny the faith. I hope it's not. I don't think that's really the, the glaring danger. I think the danger here around this room is that you and I would settle for a mediocre version of our faith. It's not that we would deny it like Philadelphia. It's not that. That's, it was that we would settle for a mediocre version of it. That we would settle in and go, okay, there's a Sunday night service now. That's comfortable. I can like sleep in, go to brunch, do my thing. And I, and I got in a community group. I've been on the waiting list for like eight years, and I got into one now. Like, I'm in. I'm in. So, like, I, I think I'm, I'm going to settle in now. I think I'm good. Like, I got some, my Sunday night thing. I got my community group thing. Um, and I'm just going to settle in. And, and, and where we're no longer looking, we're no longer thinking that God, everywhere that we go, 
Every encounter that we have, every way that we might have influence in the city, we see it as open doors of opportunity for gospel work. We just kind of settle on, oh, that's good enough. I go to church, I do my thing, and, and, then I, and I work really hard at, at what I do. We, we've, we've lost, we can, we can settle into a mediocre version of our faith where we lose sight that God might want or is calling us to step through open doors. One of my, my pastor friends um, says that um, life has a way of uh, conspiring to take those who are passionate about God and reduce them to spiritual mediocrity. That's, uh, that's so, uh, there's something about San Francisco that grinds us down pretty hard. Like we might move to the city with great visions of what God might want to do through us, and then we're just, we're just like grind it on and grind it on. And, and the, whole, the world, the, 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 the sin, flesh, and the devil conspire to take those that like have this vision and, and, and call of God and then we're, we're grinded down to just spiritual mediocrity where we just settle in, where we're like, that's good enough. Okay, that's good. I, I, I think I've done what I wanted to do. But what happened to the things that God has placed in your life to do? What happened to you stewarding well the influence that you have or the currency that you have or the doors of opportunity that, has, that God has opened before you where you're at, the people he has called you to be around, that seed of vision that God planted in your heart when you probably, when you moved here. And it's understandable. Like, I think one of the most understandable ways that we slip, slip into mediocrity is by going into like safe mode or low battery power mode where we do everything we can to conserve the little strength that we have left because we feel weak. And I understand that. Like, I, I get this, I completely understand this. Where we have so much energy that goes out of us because of some form of either hard part in our life or because of the grind of what it takes to, to make it in the city. And we go into, we go into self-protection mode. We live under the rule of self-protection. We go insular, we go safe. But here's the thing. If you're feeling weak tonight, listen. One of the beauties of the Christian faith is that God uses weak things. That's one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian faith. God uses weak things, and by things I mean people. God uses weak people. You must remember who the hero of the book of Revelation is. The hero in the book of Revelation is a slaughtered lamb. I know that we read Revelation and we're like, God, uh, Jesus on a white horse and a rope dipped in blood and a sword. But yes, white horse, absolutely victory. But the robe dipped in blood is his blood and the sword's coming out of his mouth because he speaks truth. And before that, in Revelation chapter 5, he's revealed as a lion, but he doesn't look like a lion. He's a lamb. He's victorious, white horse. How has he overcome? By a vulnerable, by being a vulnerable, slaughtered lamb. That's the hero of our story. God uses weak things, weak people. If you feel weak tonight, God uses you. I want to read to you. I'm going to read to you like it's part of the sermon, but I want you to listen to this because sometimes I think we, when we read scripture, we don't really read it like it's to us. But I want you to hear this like it's to you tonight. This is Paul writing about hard ministry, hard to open doors of opportunity in, to, to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me start in verse 5. Paul says, for what we preach is not ourselves. I want, the, I want you to hear this like this is 
God's literal word to you. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That is a beautiful picture of God's power, rule, authority, light, illumination, his glory. Look at the next verse. But we have this glory, this glorious treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about our bodies. He's talking about our bodies being made from dust. Our bodies as earthen vessels. Why would God place his all-surpassing glory in cracked, broken, fragile earthen vessels? Why? Why would God take all of his surpassing glory and place it in us? He says, we have this treasure in our bodies, jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The reason why God uses weak, humble, vulnerable people is to show that his power is from, the power is from him and not from us. Have you ever read the Old Testament story of Samson? I have a theory of Samson that Samson was a very small man, really puny. That's my theory. Because everybody's like, where's his strength come from? Like if, he's, if he was yoked, everybody's like, well, he's strong because he's big. He's like huge and like tears people. Like I, like I just imagine this really small guy who like can rip a lion apart. Like where does that strength come from? I don't know if that's proven. That's just what I think. You can tell me if I'm wrong afterwards and then I'll say whatever. But that's my, that's my theory. This, but that's what this is, this is what this is saying. Like our weak, fragile flesh, God places his spirit in us. And Paul says we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What Paul is saying is that without death there is no resurrection. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe that therefore and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people can cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Receive that as a word from God tonight. And here's the difference. If you were in community group this last week, this was in your community group material. Here's the difference between the church in Sardis last Sunday that we talked about and the church in Philadelphia this Sunday. The church in Sardis looked alive, but it was dead. The church in Philadelphia looked weak and dead, but it was alive. The church in Sardis looked like it was bumping, life was going on, oh my gosh, there's, a, there's like this, there's so much life in this church, and Jesus is like, no, actually, you look alive, but you're dead. And then the church in Philadelphia was weak, was pressure on every side, fragile, and then Jesus is like, this church is alive. And through their weakness, 
through their weakness, God wanted them to walk through doors of open, open doors of opportunity. He doesn't say, hey, I need you to toughen up so that I can use you. He's like, as weak, fragile, vulnerable people, I know that you're weak. I know that you have little strength. I want you to take that little strength, and I want you to walk through open doors as weak people, as vulnerable people, as humble people. I want you to, be, to, to know that I'm going to use you as weak people. And church, I believe that God has placed before us an open door of opportunity in the city. Rebecca Solnit has a book where she writes an atlas of San Francisco called Infinite City. And the book starts like this. San Francisco is the most left part of the left coast and the un-American place where America invents itself. That's a great quote. I love that quote. She says it's the left part, left coast, I mean left coast, but it's the left, the most left part. And it's the most un-American place, but it ever, like throughout the, the, the years, San Francisco is a place where America invents or reinvents itself. And you know what I, what I, what I see in my, in my spirit or in my mind when I hear that, when I see? I see an open door of opportunity in this city and in this generation that God has placed before us. If this is the, a city where culture is created and goes out to change the nation and the world, and God has a small number of weak people called the church, I see that as an open door of opportunity. Are we weak? Yeah, yeah, we're weak. For sure we're weak. Are we vulnerable? Yeah, I, I can't even begin to tell you or count the ways that this church is vulnerable. Do we have cultural and political power? Absolutely not. No, we do not. But we have an open door of opportunity that Christ has placed before us. And therefore, we have a responsibility to step through as a church. There's a professor who, who's passed now, but he was a professor um, emeritus at Berkeley um, of sociology, Robert Bela. And he wrote in Psychology Today years ago, he said this. He said, we should not underestimate the significance of the, of the small group of people who have a vision of a just and gentle world. He says, in Japan, for example, a very small minority of Protestant Christians introduced ethics into politics and had an impact beyond all proportion to their numbers. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. This is, a, this is possible. Like what Jesus wants to do through his church and this generation and this city and through this city to the world is possible. Like, I believe it. I, I sense, I, I see this vision of Christ, of us partnering with Jesus to see revival and hope happen in our city. The title of this sermon is taken from a poem about Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, just to nerd out on you real quick. Um, and, it's, and the poem is, All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter. If you read the book, um, The Fellowship of the Ring, it's when the hobbits meet Aragorn or Strider, he was then called, and when they first meet him, he's dirty and unassuming and doesn't look important at all. And then uh, Gandalf gets, gives a poem, right? Uh, um, and as they're reading this poem about him, it opens with, all that is gold does not glitter. And the poem means that this unassuming man is vastly more important than he looks. The same thing goes for the church in Philadelphia. That church did not glitter, but it was gold. It was weak. 
but Christ loved this church and saw it like being used as an open door for, the, for gospel mission. And the Lord is asking this church, Philadelphia, to step through the divinely open door with all of its weakness, with all of its unassumingness. And I can't help to think that, to believe that God might be calling us to the same thing. That God might be calling us, church, to step through open doors of opportunity for lasting gospel work in this city. But I will end by confessing to you that I have not necessarily been doing a good job at this for a while. I'll just completely confess that to you because I don't want you to think that I'm teaching this and it's like, oh, I can never be like you. You're full-time, you do this, and I can't. Like, I honestly have not been doing a good job at this. Um, I went through a long stretch where I didn't want to talk to anyone outside of my, in my opinion, very busy appointment calendar and network of friends that I try to keep. I was like seriously just too tired. I would stand next to people in line. I would sit next to them on planes. I would get in their cab or their Uber or whatever, and I just did not want to talk to anyone. I would open my laptop, open my phone. I'd respond to the things I have to do. I have to study for this thing. Like I would, I'm like, I'm too busy to, to let anyone else into my, my sur- I, I just don't have the time or the energy. And a few months ago, a friend of mine um, really called me out on this, and God convicted me pretty heavily. And it was with this, like I wasn't being hospitable. This is one of the values of this church, by the way. Hospitality is, is seeing life as an invitation to us by God to let other people in. And I wasn't doing it. I was just shut off. I was like, I'm way too, I have to, I have to manage way too many things. And I, I could, I, and I did tell myself this, I'll be completely honest with you. I told myself, I've done enough. I think I've prayed for enough people today. I think I've talked to enough people today. I think, I've, I, I think I've done enough. I don't have to, like, add my Uber driver to the list. And I would really think that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to let him in. And I was so convicted by this because I, I, I didn't see my, my life and the, the happenstance encounters that I walked through as, like, God opening doors of opportunity. God inviting me to let other people in or let me in. Open doors of opportunity to listen or to help or to serve or to bless or encourage or to witness. And a few months ago, I was really convicted by this. And I... And I, I, I repented, and I tried to start walking in a different way. And I, I and this is, I, I find that I have more energy, more life by letting other people in. I find that, that in my own life, when this happens, I feel more energized and like, I don't know what God might want to do. But do I do I do I do I start with the person in front of me? Do I start letting in the person right in front of me? Do I do am I am I like living into this? And finally, not to be perfunctory, this is not perfunctory, but all of this truly flows from Christ's committed love to us. All of this does. Um, in verse 9, uh, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia that there's some Jews that call themselves Jews, but they're not. What was going on there, this is not anti-Semitic at all, what was going on there is that um, there were, there were, what was going on um, in that town was that the, they were being persecuted by the Romans, right? Um, and they were also being persecuted by, the Christians were pre- being persecuted by the Jews. And um, Jesus is kind of mad. Like, okay, I get it. I get the Romans. Like, yeah, they're like anti-God, whatever. But the Jews are like pro-God. They're like, they're my people. And they're crushing my people. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. And he goes, they say they're Jews. And they say they're my people. But they're not. They're liars. They're from the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue was where the Jewish church gathered. 
Jesus has harsh words because they were persecuting the church. And Jesus says, one day what's going to happen is I'm going to actually make them come before you and bow down before you, and I'm going to tell them how I've loved you. I'm going to tell them the whole time they're thinking that they're not, you're not of God, you're not of Yahweh. I'm going to tell them, yes, they are, and I have loved them. And Jesus reinforces Philadelphia, their weak, fragile vulnerability. He, he strengthens them by saying, I've loved you. And I, I'm going to tell the world that I've loved you. I'm going to tell the whole world that I've loved you. What sustains us in our weakness is the love of Christ. And what compels us to walk through open doors is the love of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ compels us. So may the love of Christ compel you and may the love of Christ strengthen you.